This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guests consist of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to WisdomTree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of WisdomTree's affiliates. Uh, a very exciting show lined up for everybody today. We've got the August jobs report this morning. We've got Headlines coming from Powell testifying or, or giving a speech here right now. Uh, we're going to Professor Siegel's commentary on the markets and then a great macro discussion uh, with Jim Bianco and Peter Bookvar, two uh, macro-focused uh, guests. Uh, Professor, let's lead it off with you. What's your thoughts on the latest jobs report, what it means for the Fed and Powell giving his, uh, his speech right now? Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was a real mixed bag. Uh, the, the negatives, really the private sector um, uh, was really weak. I mean, you know, people are saying it was 30,000 under. Uh, the truth of the matter is it was 55,000 under for the payrolls. And uh, the previous month was revised down by uh, 17,000 So on the private payroll. So it, private payrolls definitely are, are down. I mean, if it weren't for that census hiring, you know, you would see it in, in, in even more on, on the overall. Um, on the positive side, we got another, we got a nice bump up of that participation rate back up to 63.2, which is, you know, ties the highest that we've been a couple other times last year. We've talked about the importance of that in terms of expanding the workforce to absorb the, the, the demand that's there. Um, um, we also got the un- underemployment rate just ticking up 7.2. That shows maybe a little more uh, slackness. Actually, one of the data points that isn't often reported is uh, the change in household uh, measure of employment. Uh, the reason why it's not reported is it's, it's not as accurate as the payroll, um, but it does include self-employed workers, and that was up uh, over uh, almost 600,000, um, and it, uh, which was uh, it had been trending way below the payroll, and now that it caught up. That's actually uh, sort of uh, good news. We had a little bit more pressure on average hourly earnings, not to worry about it because the productivity has also been trending up over the last year. So, uh, you know, I don't think that that measure gives you any um, uh, inflation, inflationary consequences. Uh, the average work week, which um, last month sank uh, down to 34.3, very unusual during an expansion, actually now bounced back 34.4. So that was expected, and that was actually uh, good news. Um, so, you know, o- overall, I mean, the, the private payrolls definitely looked like they were rolling over. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying into a recession and everything, but there's where the, the weakness are actually is, and... Um, uh, uh, however, on Thursday, we got all those reports that say we're not going to recession after an absolutely terrible Tuesday uh, with that ISM report, uh, which was one of the worst that I had actually seen. And that really got inflationary fears. Actually, when the, that's when that 10-year actually bounced to a, to a, to a new yearly low. Um, and then when we got the good news on Thursday, uh, all, the, uh, all the longs got scared out of the bond. And we had a huge increase in yields. Um, there's a little bit coming back in now. So, uh, again, I mean, you can look at this either way. I, I look at it as, as still marking a slowdown. I, 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 it's not enough at this point. Now, we're still, you know, week and a half away from the Fed move. I think to give a 50 basis points is definitely enough for 
a 25 basis points. I'm still believe a 50 basis point is is appropriate given um, the other rates that we see not only in the U.S. but around the world. Yeah, you have uh, Powell saying things like um, he's committed to non-political decision making. I don't think we actually got to talk about the Bill Dudley comments in in Bloomberg. Uh, yeah. Any any sense of what's going on there and what Dudley was was thinking with his piece? Yeah, and uh, you know, I I I do think it's unfortunate that Trump. I mean, I you know, I agree with Trump that the rate should be lower. Unfortunately, when he sets himself up so strongly against Powell, you have a lot of people on on the Fed side that are are are, are now going to be saying, "I'm not don't want to appear like I'm buckling under to the president." That is not good for the central bank. Um, but then, what happens if you say, "But is that the best thing that we could actually do?" And unfortunately, this could skew decision making. I don't think at this point it will. As I say, I see one cut um, there, uh, even though I would like two cuts uh, in, in it. Uh, but I think that that is just another example of trying to fend off the uh, apparent you know, political interference that Trump has in, in terms of what he wants uh, Powell to do. And so when you come down to, or so we talked about the bond market a bit on equities, it's, it's just a wait to see the China trade story in October. Yeah. Is it I mean, all the trade is definitely, around? I mean, you know, it's on again, off again. I, I, we, we pointed out, I, I have maintained the position all through the year that Trump can't afford to get this into an all-out war and pull off those 25% tariffs. Uh, and I think he knows it. And he, I think... He knows that, you know, even if he seems to get a deal later on, that would so tank the market in the meantime that people say, why did you put me through it? And uh, uh, they would be very skeptical. My feeling is it's going to stop short of that. I don't even think there's going to be much of any um, uh, escalation from this point. Um, And I think, you know, by the end of the year, there will be some sort of a deal that will be brokered. I do believe that is what the stock market believes. There's no other way to explain, you know, the market being, you know, basically 1% to 2% below an all-time high, which is what the S&P is, without believing that this trade uh, war is going to be resolved. Um, because if it isn't and ramped up, there, you know, that that is really going to interfere with the supply chain and the prices and, and um, and uh, the sentiment on uh, on equities. Uh, any other things you're watching on a, on a global basis here? Well, I, you know, I mean, we're all watching the Brexit, <laughs> what's going on in Britain, which is quite unprecedented uh, there. I mean, I've always maintained that Brexit isn't a big thing for U.S. equities, but certainly Brexit is big for Europe uh, and certainly Britain in in, in particular. So. Uh, now the odds makers have now, uh, which uh, when Boris Johnson took hold, uh, were uh, saying it looks like uh, you know there will be a Brexit or it was there was uh, odds on a Brexit. Now are saying, given the defeats that he's had, um, uh, that now they're putting off a December, excuse me, an October 31st Brexit is now down to about 20 percent in the odds makers. So there's going to be some sort of an extension. Um, which I think is good for Europe and good for European uh, equities uh, on that front. Very good. Well, thanks for giving us some some commentary to start the show today. Thank you very much. I'm going to bring in our first two guests. Uh, We have Peter Bookvar, who's the Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for the Bleakley Advisor Group, $4.5 billion wealth management firm. He's also the editor of The Book Report, a macroeconomic and market newsletter, as well as a CNBC contributor. Uh, We also have Jim Bianco, who's the President and CEO of Bianco Research. He writes a a lot of great macro commentary focused on the Fed, uh, who's also being considered to be a on the Fed governors is what I understand, Jim. Um, welcome both of you, Peter, Jim, to our program. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank you. Hi, Jim. 
Um, maybe I could, uh, Jim, since, since you uh, had, have some recent experience being considered for the Fed, maybe give us your current lay of the land, Powell talking. Where do you see all the discussion around the Fed, what they're going to do, your, your sort of your outlook here? Uh, my outlook is a lot similar to Dr. Siegel's. I think that they're going to move 25 basis points. I think they should move 50 basis points. I think that the inverted yield curve, the 10-year yield being below the three-month yield, is a market signal that rates are too high and have to come down. The uh, famous economist Rudy Dornbusch coined the phrase that the Fed murders the economy time and again. And that came about because history shows that the Fed usually fights when it's time to cut rates. and They hold them too high for too long. So when you get a market signal, like the inverted yield curve, that it's time for you to start lowering them, I get worried when they start doing this reluctantly and not cutting rates enough to uninvert the curve that they're going to be repeating the mistake that they've done so many times in the past, restricting the economy with interest rates until it's become obvious that they've made that mistake. And at that point, we're almost in a recession. Yeah, and you have you know the guys like Bullard who who are the most focused on that inverted yield curve and say I've been fooled twice on this before. I don't want to be fooled again. But then you have you know the other side. They're saying it's more of a global issue, less a U.S. issue. Is that their their what they're holding their 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 hat on? Yeah, exactly. I'd also put Neil Kashkari into the group with Bullard, who's also very worried about the uh, yield curve. So there are some people that are vocalizing that argument. Uh, I think the problem with the dismissal of the yield curve with a global economy is I'd like to say interest rates are a relative um, a relative game, not an absolute game. When I say interest rates are too high, usually old people, and I'm old too, will come to me and say, oh, come on, they're 2%. How can they be high? I remember 15%. And what I point out is that for the first time in 40 years, the Fed funds rate at 2% is the highest policy rate in the developed world. It is actually, for the first time ever, the only interest rate left in the developed world at any tenor, from three-month bills to 30-year bonds, that's still above 2%. Uh, so what has happened is that that rate is out of line. That is the important issue. It's not about whether the absolute rate is 8 or 10 or minus 1 in the case of Europe. But where are you relative to everywhere else, everybody else? And since we are out of line with everybody else, I think that's what the market's trying to tell you. We live in a globally connected world. Interest rates are globally connected, and it is time to bring them back in the line with everybody else. Peter, how are you looking at this environment here as you, you stack up the macro and the Fed and bonds? How, how's, how, what are you thinking? Well, I, I'd rather us not get drawn into the mud uh, of, of near-zero interest rates that the ECB and the BOJ have created. So I, 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 I get what Jim is saying. Uh, I'm just afraid that uh, we go down this path and we're going to be stuck just like they are. And the cost of capital is very low. So, yeah, on a relative basis, we're much higher. But I don't hear of any uh, household or business that's talking about the cost of credit being an issue. So, yeah, maybe we can cut rates once or twice, but there has to be a point where we don't want to cross the Rubicon of repeating the mistakes of the BOJ and the ECB, of damaging their banking system, killing their yield curve, and, and, and fracturing their entire financial system. And trying to chase them down is, is our way of getting there. And so if, if I was chairman of the Fed, I'd say, okay, markets, I'll give you a couple of rate cuts We'll see what we can do with the curve, but uh, I'm not taking the Fed funds rate below, call it one, one and a quarter percent, because anywhere below that does absolutely nothing in terms of stimulus, and if anything, uh, as I said, does damage to to a banking system. I mean, the whole point of cutting interest rates is to stimulate activity that wouldn't have happened today, but instead happens tomorrow. So if the cost of capital is already extraordinarily low. I don't know what sort of pull-forward economic activity lower rates are going to create. And if we are just doing it just so we can steepen the curve, well, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. And I can't dismiss the dramatic downward pressure on long-term interest rates that 
a minus 65 basis point 10-year bond yield is doing or a uh, uh, minus 25 basis point 10-year JGB yield is doing. Now, I don't yes, know where the U.S. 10-year would be if those rates were higher. I would just say that it wouldn't be as low as it is right now. I mean, it's fascinating. We also have a, an ECB meeting next week, and they've, you know, there's, there was uh, some calls and speculation they need to pull out another bazooka. What does this next bazooka and be, to beat market expectations look like? They go more negative. Uh, is it just too hard for them once they start down this negative path that they can't say, you know, your, your point is, hey, I think it would be stimulative if they raise rates. And that's just so counter to the narrative that they're, they're following. We, we've had enough bazookas from central banks. We've, we've had enough of, of, of forced borrowing you know, shoved down our throats. Uh, there has to be a, a, an adult in the room. There has to be a Paul Volcker in the room that says, you know what, we've done enough. Enough is enough. Stop looking to us to, 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 to pull out these bazookas and do everything. I mean, it's just negative interest rates alone is, in my opinion, restrictive policy. It is not easing. It's restrictive because you're killing your banks. And if you kill your banks, then you're destroying the transmission mechanism of monetary policy, and you basically cut off uh, a profitable way of, of loaning money to business. So we are certainly there in Europe and, and Japan. And you know, the, it's, it's the paradox of thrift is, is you lower rates, well, consumers end up saving more. Uh, you, you, you actually scare them. If you look at the last University of Michigan confidence number, and they cited consumer confidence fell because they see the Fed's cutting interest rates, and they see with the Fed's cutting interest rates, that means that there's a problem with the economy, and they're going to rein it in. Uh, Jim talked about, yeah, the Fed is, is, always kills the recovery. That's certainly the case, but now we also have, we also have tariffs that are killing the economy. And I don't, I don't know how rate cuts are going to you know, offset uh, the damage done to to higher tariffs and 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 what that's done to global growth. So, yeah, I I, I grant and I I don't ignore the 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 steep, uh, the inverted yield curve. It's because the growth is slowing. I just don't know what rate cuts are going to do to help that. And again, I'm afraid that the Fed's going to get trapped like the others uh, if they go down this path. Let me just reintroduce Hi. our guest real quick. We're talking with Peter Bookvar, the Chief Investment Officer at Bleakley Advisory Group, Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. Uh, Jim, I just cut you off there. Yeah, I was just going to respond to a couple of things that Peter said, um, and maybe I'll just say them directly to Peter. Peter, first, I agree with you that cutting rates, I've advocated exactly what you said. I Cut rates stop at one. Don't go any lower than that. But if you're going to cut rates, let's go now rather than go later. Why? Why cut rates? This week in the corporate bond market, we set a record amount of corporate bond issuance. Uh, a lot of that issuance is occurring in Europe, and Berkshire Hathaway has even issued bomb, uh, bonds in Japan. Why? Because you can issue bonds in Europe at a negative interest rate, essentially get free money. So J.P. Morgan, the Apples, the IBMs of the world are issuing bonds denominated in euros, and they're essentially getting to pay no interest payment on that free money. If you are a small-cap company in the United States, you don't have the luxury of maybe issuing euro bonds or Swiss bonds to capture those negative interest rates. You're stuck with a 2% interest rate. So the Fed has got this bifurcated market, or the market is bifurcated that the big global players can rush to the country that has the lowest rates and get essentially free money, but the smaller players are still stuck with the domestic market and put at somewhat of a competitive disadvantage. And that's starting to show up in some of the statistics where if you look at the S&P 500, the, um, the, the interest coverage on those numbers have been declining slightly. But in the small cap 600, it's been increasing slightly because they don't have that advantage. So I do think that there is a pain from interest rates uh, that the relative rate matters who you are. And so you're right when people say it won't do anything to cut rates. Yeah, because. Apple is already borrowing in Swiss francs and borrowing in Europe at zero interest rate. They're getting free money already. They don't need it. But a Timken Bearing or some other small company uh, that borrows primarily in the United States, they're still paying 2% and they're putting at a competitive disadvantage. Uh, now, one thing that with, with that, I, and, I, and I wish we, there was a way to figure this out, is that you know, a lot of large companies have major business presence in these countries. So 
Well, if you have European factories, you can sell European-denominated debt and pay back that debt in euros or you know, yen or whatever, where a lot of small companies don't have that same international presence. And therefore, they may, yeah, they can sell European or, 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 or yen-denominated debt, but then they're taking currency risk that they need, they need to hedge out, and they probably have much less exposure, direct exposure in those countries. So it, it, I understand your point. Uh, I just don't know the small companies' exposure to a lot of these countries that would even be worth their while to sell debt in these foreign currencies. I agree. It wouldn't be worth their while to do it. And uh, that's why I think that the case I'm trying to make is why the relative interest rate case matters. And that's why, as you pointed out, I, I couldn't agree with you more, the destructive nature of negative interest rates, especially on the European and Japanese banking system. It's been terrible as far as what they, we've seen there. But nevertheless, we live in an interconnected world. And if the ECB is going to make a mistake by going to negative rates and potentially next week doubling down by going even further negative, it affects us. It, it puts downward pressure on our interest rates. It puts a bigger pull on our Fed to lower policy rates. Gone are the days where we set our rate based on domestics. They set their rates based on their domestics. And maybe they diverge or maybe they don't diverge. Look, the whole trade fight has been about a global economy. Well, okay, if we have a global economy, you also have global interest rates, and there needs to be some kind of coordination with interest rates. And obviously there isn't, because I think if there was coordination, we would agree that negative rates is not a good idea and that they've got themselves trapped into it in Europe, and they've put their banking system in a bad place, and it is affecting us by helping us force our rates lower. Have you guys followed uh, Megan Green, who is one of our, our fellow friends from Maine, Cam Kozak, she's been there a number of times, and uh, she talked about in the FT, Financial Times, a, a, an op-ed talking about the big gift from Draghi could be his her the TLTROs, the Teltros, that could provide two-tier types of rates, where you could have one type of rate for savers, one type of rate for banks, and if they do certain types of lending, they could get access to the sort of deeper discounted rates, but you'd have savers who'd actually get positive income instead of collecting negative income. Is that a type of policy you would support? Well, before I answer the question, one thing of interest over the past week and a half has been the internal pushback to more easing in Europe. You know, Draghi laid it all out like he wants to do more. Then you had Ali Ren, another ECB member, that says, we're going to go big bazooka here. And everyone got excited. And then all of a sudden, last week and early into this week, you had six ECB members that said, wait, uh, I'm not for this. I'm not for more Kiwi. I don't see the need for it. And also people talking about the, the, the damaging impact of going further deeper into negative interest rates. And even in Japan, you had a, a BOJ member uh, late last week, and actually maybe it was over the weekend, that talked about the, this so-called reversal rate, where you reach a point where it does damage uh, to your financial system. And this BOJ member basically said, we're almost there. So you've, you've, you actually have central bankers that are beginning to say, you know what, we've done enough. Now to the point, and, and, and that gets to the point of the TL, TLTROs, which is, another, which is a way for them to think that they're providing some stimulus without having to expand their balance sheet through QE and going deeper into negative interest rates. So I wouldn't be surprised if they relied more on that because of, of the internal dissent on, on going more extreme with, with negative interest rates, even if they tried to tier it, and, and with this QE. So yeah, I'd be betting on that as their policy response rather than something else, which I think would be a better idea but you have a bond market set up that is pricing in another rate cut and possibly more QE. And I'm of the argument that we are actually now approaching the end game of this monetary extremism because now of the internal pushback you're getting on, uh, in, in, in the halls of the ECB and the BOJ. And they're finally, after all these years, looking at their banking system and basically saying, what have we done? And now so they're trying what to is figure the out other ways. 
had what is it uh, if if they can't do more monetary stimulus? What do you think the end game looks up? Is it is it yields? Well, I mean, the yields have collapsed. Are they going back up? Are they going to? Is U.S. Well, going to follow think, Europe I think and Japan? The, the yield move we've seen over the past couple of days in response to some of these comments, it could be the beginning of uh, of an adjustment higher in interest rates. I mean, even even Kuroda yesterday, or or I should say overnight, uh, in a speech said he's now getting worried about the sharp drop in longer-term interest rates. So remember, he's got this yield curve control, at least in the 10-year, and doesn't want the 10-year to fall too much below uh, 20 basis points. Well, now, a couple of days ago, it was minus 27 basis points, and now it's minus 24. He even said, I'm worried about the drop in longer-term interest rates. When has a central banker ever, ever said, I'm worried about rates falling too much? So you had the 40-year JGB yield overnight, and I say 40 because that's the least, that's the furthest out on the curve and therefore least impacted by what they've done on the short end, was up nine basis points. Now, for something that is only 15 to 16 basis points, watching it jump nine basis points in one day is a big move. So when I say endgame, I mean that if, if they come out and said, you know what, we're, we're, we can't go any more negative, uh, you've seen the most we're going to go, uh, you're, you potentially could see uh, a rather sharp adjustment higher in interest rates. And because you're talking about assets that have now been turned into liabilities, if there is a sell-off in a lot of these negative-yielding bonds, it's not something that's going to be gradual, in my opinion. It's something that can be rather sharp because it is the ultimate hot potato because you don't, you, you're not going you to you're not going to make anything by holding it uh, to maturity. You're, you're, you're guaranteed to lose. So the reminder I give is back in 2015, the German 10-year bond yield went from seven basis points to 1% in two months. So if the ECB disappoints in terms of not doing QE and not going deeper negative, and if the BOJ says, you know, we can't do any more, uh, irrespective of what the Fed's going to do this month, I think that we're, that the last couple of days is, is the precursor of potentially more, uh, some pain to come in, in, in the bonds, and that the August plunge in yields and rise in price uh, could have been, a, for now, a, a, a blow-off. Hmm. Uh, Jim, any reaction to where we are on that 10-year bond market or just global bond yields? Is, it, is, this, the, is this the end of the bull market? Uh, you know, that's been a tough one to call for the end of the bull market, but I think what Peter says is right. Next Thursday is the ECB meeting. And there is a wide expectation that they will cut to deeper negative and institute some kind of stimulus program in a QE. And Peter's right. A lot of members have pushed back on that, at least in speeches. If we get to Thursday and the decision is there will be no cutting of rates, there will be no QE, there will be something like the Teltros that Megan Green was talking about or some other version of that, that's tectonic. Because if they don't do it, next Thursday, they will never do it again. Then they will have announced that they have gone a paradigm shift into some new era. Maybe they are looking to raise rates. I think that that would be fine. If they, I, Not fine. It would actually be preferable that instead of us cutting rates, I'd like to see the spreads narrowed. Let them raise rates to, to narrow the spread to get them back above zero, I think would be in everybody's best interest uh, as well. So I am torn on this. I hear the arguments. I hear what they're saying. But it's a big deal if they don't cut on Thursday because that is a signal, not just, oh, check back with me in October to see if we change our mind again, that we might be completely changing the way that they do monetary policy in Europe. Remember, the ECB has got a bigger balance sheet than the Federal Reserve, that the combined economy of the European, um, uh, the eurozone, of the countries that use the euro as the currency, is as large, if not larger, than the United States. So it, it matters a lot to us. There is a number of multinational companies headquartered in the United States that have large European operations. So if they change, we'll feel it as well, too. We're going we're to have to take a short break, but we have Peter and Jim for the hour. They'll be with us after the break. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking to Peter Bookfar, Jim Bianco, and we will be back after a short break. Uh, we're just talking global macro, the Fed, the ECB, what's happening in the interest rate market. Uh, and, and Peter, I think I'll start with you because you were talking about the, maybe we're at the end game of central banks. This yield spike that we saw recently uh, it, it could be the, the, 
short foreshadowing what's to come. Now, we've also, I also had some conversation with you, interestingly, on what's been going on across other asset classes. When you're looking over portfolios, chief investment officer managing these, these portfolios, how are you thinking about all the asset classes, equities, bonds, commodities? How, what's your outlook across the board uh, you know, as you think about trying to position portfolios given where we are? Well, at least on the fix, fixed income side, uh, it's it's to stay short duration, and you know that that's you sort of missed out on the on the capital gains that uh, medium to longer term bonds have experienced. But I still think it's it's the prudent place to be, uh, at least in the U.S., where you're actually getting some yield, and uh, you're going to take off the table the potential for uh, some capital losses uh, if I am right. And again, I just want to emphasize. The reason why I'm saying what I'm saying about bonds is because if central banks realize they can't go further negative, well, then you sort of put a floor on this this huge plunge in yields and, and rise in the dollar-denominated values of, of all these negative yielding bonds. Uh, and with respect to stocks, you know, a lot of it comes down to time horizon. And, and because stocks are now expensive, I mean, earnings expectations, and Jim can speak to this, from what I see on my Bloomberg, you're, you're now down to $165. This is like the lowest level of earnings per share estimates this year. Now you're trading 18 times earnings. So when we get new money to invest, uh, we first have the client to understand that make sure you have a couple years of liquidity set aside because uh, buying the market at this stage of the cycle at 18 times earnings with the economy slowing, uh, with part of it in a recession, and the inability of central banks to, 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 to fight that off. Um, if you need to pay for a wedding uh, or, or college or something over the next couple of years, you better set that money aside. Now, if you have a longer-term perspective, then you know, we can ease our way into the markets and, and, and hopefully uh, actually root for downturns because then you can buy things cheaper. But now is not the time to be a hero. Uh, I've also been uh, a fan of gold and silver that's finally now working. Uh, because of this this race to the bottom in terms of rates, and I expect that that's one asset to to, to rally. And getting back with stocks, uh, I, I tend to focus more on value stocks, and, and I'm hoping that that value uh, finally takes the mantle from growth in terms of uh, performance here. If if investors all of a sudden become more sensitive to valuations in the context of a uh, a slowing global economy. I'd love to drill into a few of these points a little bit further. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I think you showed one of these charts on how gold was tracking negative interest rates uh, almost to a T that, you know, in terms of the correlations. And, and so I'm, I'm curious how some of your views on what's happening in bonds might correlate to a future view of gold. And, and you and I were talking and, and you had a, you know, sort of bold prediction on where gold could ultimately be going. But I'm curious to get you to sort of talk about that here today, too, also. Yeah, so the, the chart of, of, of overlaying the price of gold with negative yielding, um, it was the dollar value of negative yielding bonds. It's just another way of overlaying gold with real rates. As lower real rates go, the higher gold prices go. Now, if I'm right and yields now jump in the short term, yeah, gold could be uh, certainly vulnerable to a sell-off. Uh, but it, it's a question of, of real rates. And if, you know, the inflation numbers it, it have certainly trended down, uh, I'm more worried about the inflation side, not on an absolute basis, but on a rate of change basis, in that you're going to get some goods inflation with these tariffs uh, on top of pretty sticky uh, services inflation that um, you still could see a decline or not necessarily an increase in real rates, even with a jump in nominal rates. Any any Good. any calls for the uh, the end of this gold market? Is where where if you if you looked ahead, um, we'll put a, put a number out there. Well, because I, I believe that the the bull market has resumed, and you can argue that it, it the bear market ended back in December 2015 when gold bottomed to 1050. And each new bull market typically exceeds the prior bull market, which means above 1900 in gold and uh, 45 to 50 dollars in silver. And I think that's we that where we're headed. And uh, considering that the fundamentals of this precious metal bull market, I believe, is is far and away stronger than what we saw in the 1970s. Uh, I think those levels are, are going to be exceeded at some point in the next year or two. Jim, any comments on either the the, the uh, precious metals, gold and silver, or just the the, the broad equity markets there that, that Peter was talking about? 
Yeah, uh, taking gold and silver, I agree with Peter about it being a measure of real rates, or as I whipped, the problem with gold is we've been using gold as a medium of exchange for a millennia or many millennia, and it, it always it had no yield, and it was always at a detriment. Well, welcome to 2019, where zero is now the high-yield alternative. So the more that we have negative-yielding debt, the better that gold looks more on a relative basis, which is why that chart does correlate. And we'll see whether or not next week the ECB is going to do a tectonic shift and move away from this policy. But I kind of have my doubts, and I think they won't. And then we're going to get more negative debt, and we're probably going to get higher gold prices as we move from here. On the stock market, the U.S. stock market, Peter's right that the biggest problem the stock market has right now is there's no earnings growth, that we're down around 3% year-over-year growth for earnings uh, for 2019, the whole year. Contrast that to last year, which was at around 24%. But last year we also had a distortion in it because we cut tax rates. We cut the corporate tax rate. So that's why you saw a big bump up in earnings because of lower tax rates. Uh, but it wasn't all that. There was uh, some real growth there. But uh, it explains why, if you look at the stock market at nearly 3,000 on the uh, S&P today, it's almost exactly where it was a year ago. It's not really going anywhere. It just seems to be meandering sideways as we have no earnings, as we get worried with falling rates and the inverted yield curve, whether or not that's signaling a slowdown in the economy is coming that there really hasn't been a lot of appreciation in the stock market. Now, on a year-to-date basis, it looks good because we had an unusual circumstance that we had the biggest sell-off last year occur right into almost the last day of the year. It was Christmas Eve that the market bottomed, and then the rebound started literally on January 4th. So the year-to-date numbers look very good, but on a yearly basis, we hadn't gone anywhere, and I think it's largely because of slowing earnings and all of the uncertainty we have. And I don't see that equation changing anytime soon. So, no, we don't go down. No, we don't really go up. We continue to see what we've seen for the last several months. We kind of buff it back and forth, but without really much of a trend either way. Peter, when do you, um, you know, when you think about the comments on, and I was trained under Professor Siegel, so as a value investor, you know, over the growth type of markets and, and sort of with you in that camp in a lot of ways, when you think about the challenges for value versus growth, a lot of it comes down to sector stories and, you know, our, some of our discussion on rates and European banks and Japanese banks have been dead money for 30 to 40 years on some of those charts on those European and Japanese banks. Do you worry on U.S. value versus growth that a lot of it is just really a call on, on tech versus financial? Um, depending on obviously how you define value in, in different indexes, but that tends to be the biggest sector bet. And that one of the, you know, given this sort of lack of growth and the sort of global growth slowdown, that there's just this preference for growth um, given just the lack of growth opportunities that have been around recently. No, there's no question. So I, I'll, I'll, I'll separate out banks because I actually think that banks are pretty much a value trap. Uh, because of what's been done to the yield curve and, and uh, to buy banks here at the what I think is the end of a, an economic cycle and start talking about loan losses and stuff what I uh, uh, next banks is not the type of value that I find attractive uh, it's other types of value but yes people are searching for growth but it's in this type of environment that if we're at an inflection point where where we're going from growth to a more moderate situation in the economy or even a potential uh, flatline or recession, well, we're going to see what's true growth and what was just cyclical growth. Because people sort of conflate that. You, you know, you take semiconductors and some people think, well, that's a growth sector. Well, I think it's just a very cyclical sector. It does well, very well, when the economy is growing and it does very poorly uh, when the economy slows down and then contracts. Uh, so, Growth is sort of in the eye of the beholder. To me, growth is something that is more of a secular thing that companies can, can really do well through any economic situation. Like, you know, Apple still sold a lot of phones all through 08, 09. Their stock got re-rated, but at least their business, was that was a growth story able to power through. Uh, and then you'll, but then you'll take, okay, let's take, let's take cloud, for example, cloud software, where a lot of these stocks are trading at 25 to 30 times sales. 
forget about earnings, but sales. Well, there's certainly growth stories, but if the economy turns and a lot of their customers either go out of business or rein in their IT spending, well, are they more cyclical growth or are they going to be secular growth? So uh, I think in this kind of environment, I think valuations all of a sudden matter. I think people need to start paying attention to valuations and, and not just chase stocks because they're going higher or just chase sales because they're going higher. Uh, I think just this is the time to be more more discriminating uh, with your investment decisions because, as Jim said, the markets essentially have done nothing. And, um, you know, I hate the cliche of stockbrokers market because it really it's either that or it's, it's just bypass it and close your eyes. Uh, but in a market that's now chopping around, that's more of a two-way market rather than this one-way up, up street that we, we saw for years, uh, you got to start paying attention to to valuations and, and, and really say, is, is this real secular growth or this is just a cyclical growth upturn uh, that's outperforming something else temporarily? Let me introduce our guests one more time real quick. We've got Peter Bookfar and Jim Bianco of Bianco Research. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, and, and Jim, what, what's your thoughts there? I was just going to say, if you look at the, the relationship or the returns between value and growth, and we've got data on that all the way back to 1926, this is one of the worst periods that value has had over growth. And a lot of it is because of what Peter said, or Jeremy, what you even said, too, is that the banks are the big value play and tech is the big growth play. And as much as tech has rallied, the banks have just been terrible as far as investment goes. And we're getting to the point where there's the only comparable period to this might be the late 1990s. That was another period where tech really took off and it made mockeries of the value play. There was very famous value managers, George Vander Hayden at Fidelity and Gary Brinson at UBS, that wound up retiring because it got so intolerable. And, of course, that was the bell ringing that it was then a period where you had a good period for value. I think that we're almost there if we're not literally there right now. That value is so hated and so mocked as an investment option that it almost becomes a very cheap alternative, and it has nothing but upside. I'm speaking relative to growth right now because it's performed so bad relative to growth over the last you know, you know, eight years or five years or so that it, it seems like from, we're all set for it to reverse. Now, you guys are sort of somewhat preaching to the choir with me because, you know, Professor Siegel, who I've worked with for 20 years, wrote Big Cap Tech Stocks, or a sucker's bet, on March 14th of 2000. So, you know, listed nine stocks, triple-digit PEs, said you can never justify these valuations. And you know, a lot of his research after that really focused on value and how do you protect from bubbles. And, and uh, it's what I've been focused on since I met him. Um, now, but I also think where the big cap tech stocks are today, you know, in aggregate, they're certainly not what they were triple digit PEs. Yes, there's some of those cloud uh, companies that, that Peter's talking about. There's some smaller cap stocks in that, or, or sort of the, you know, the fast growth parts that are in that, those really high numbers. But the overall tech sector is not that much higher than the market, actually. Well, the, the difference between this market and, and 2000 was in 2000 was only in tech. You had the rest of the market that was actually cheap. Now everything is expensive. You look at the median P.E. ratio of the S&P or, or the median price-to-sales ratio of the S&P, you're well above where you were in 2000. So it's everything that's expensive. You look at Nike, for example, and I'm not long it, I'm not short it, but it's trading at 30 times earnings. Phenomenal company. But should it be trading at 30 times earnings? McDonald's, great company, steady grower, but trading at 27 times earnings. There's a lot of names that are very expensive, and that's what separates this market from the one in 2000. Yeah, it's interesting, the, the min-vol factor, you know, that's one that has seen some of the highest multiples. I think everybody's looking for shelter with all this volatility, and that seems to be those type of stocks seem to not be the most uh, faster growth part of the market, but it seems to be higher multiples, four to five multiple points higher than the market. That seems to me one that seems interestingly elevated. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, just, it's well, that's interesting the problem with you, you have all these low vol funds, and, and people are mistaken low vol for safety. There, there's low vol in terms of their, their operating business. McDonald's, their, their business is pretty steady. But when you start trading at 27 times earnings, your stock may not all of a sudden be low vol. In, in, in any type of correction. 
you get a valuation correction at McDonald's, that thing can easily go back to trading at 20 times earnings, which would still be a healthy multiple, but that's a rather sharp decline in the stock of 25%. The volatility of the, the actual business model will pretty much stay the same, but too many people are, are, are mistaking a, a, a low-vol business with a low-vol stock. Yeah. Jim, how do you think, you know, you know how, how are you looking at the, the sort of global environment and when you think you see this sort of rise towards a lot of your, I think, clients of, of traditional active research, it tends to be more active than these sort of passive type strategies. How are you thinking about where that passive active discussion is going and, and, and just the global environment there? Well, as far as the, the environment right now, the, the, the safest place and the best returns have really come from the United States. When you look at Europe, when you look at Japan, uh, it, when you look at uh, those two developed countries, the biggest problem that you've got in those countries is they've got an outsized uh, growth area in, uh, or outsized uh, weighting in the, in the financial sectors. And negative interest rates has just really killed their financial sector. It's really killed the returns for their market. Additionally, the U.S. has all of what I'll call the disruptor companies, the FANG companies. They're not tech. They're not really retail, but they're really business disruptor models. The only other place that seems to have any disruptor models other than the U.S. is maybe the Tencent Baidu's and Alibaba's in China. But China's got a whole host of other problems as well, too. Its growth rate its GDP growth rate is lower now than it was during the great financial crisis. It is really struggling. So when you look at the world, really you really come back to the United States seems to be the place to go. And that might explain what Peter was saying. Why is everything expensive now relative to 2000? Because everybody's playing here. Is Because is there's really nowhere else to play. Europe doesn't have the disruptors. They've got a bunch of sick banks. And then they've got a bunch of traditional companies. And that's why... You know, there's really been no excitement for them as well, too. And I'm worried that the disruptor companies, the FANG stock types, I think that their cycle has run. Now, when I say their cycle has run, I'm talking about them as an investment. They will continue to be the dominant force as a business model. But that does not mean that they have to be other higher stock prices. I like to jokingly say that, you know, in 1929, RCA was one of the biggest stocks that was running in the market before the crash because they had this newfangled technology called radio. It wasn't until the 1960s that 40 years later that RCA surpassed its 1929 peak, and it took the invention not only of television, not only of network television, but of color television, three generations of technology advances just to get back to the old highs. You could see that with the, with the FANG stocks, that their stocks could peak, Wait till you see the technological innovation that they're about to bring on us, and their stocks don't go any higher for a long period of time. And that could really put a damper, especially on the growth story as well. P Peter, can, can Europe and Japan, given what this, this comment on the U.S. being expensive, they be the value story, you know, when the U.S. is the quote-unquote growth expensive story? And sort of second follow-up on that is, you know, uh, Jim talked about China being the only other place with growth, uh, sort of these some big growth names. Is China starting to ramp up some stimulus of they're talking about trying to offset some of this trade dynamics? Any sense that you'll get a positive impulse from any of the recent China activities? Well, I think China is, is doing more to cushion the slowdown rather than trying to speed up their growth rate. And, you know, just using pulling the debt lever is, is obviously the, the typical fallback, but uh, when you're suffering from, from having too much debt, usually doesn't move the needle. Uh, Europe, and, and to, to what Jim said, yeah, they're, they're stuffed with banks that are just dying, and they also have a lot of industrial uh, slash manufacturing slash commodity exposure in a lot of these indices, and that's obviously in, in, in a global recession right now. Uh, to me, more the opportunity, if you're looking for growth on, on a secular basis, is more emerging market Asia. And I specifically say emerging market Asia because emerging market South America, like Argentina and, and, and Brazil, is obviously have had their own issues. And emerging market South Africa or emerging market Turkey have their own issues. So I prefer only emerging market Asia where, yes, right now uh, it, there's growth slowing because of, of their uh, uh, 
relationship with China, and as China sneezes, everybody else catches a cold. But over time, over the next 10-plus years, it's, it's emerging Asia that you're going to see the growth. And, and, and you look at Singapore, for example, they, that's considered an emerging market, but if you go to Singapore, it's as developed as, as any country there is in the world. So to me, that's where the most exciting uh, opportunities lie uh, in terms of valuation, growth, even tech. Uh, I shouldn't mention the big Chinese tech companies, uh, but you even have Samsung in South Korea, and even Japan, for example. I mean, they have some of the great uh, um, big industrial technology companies out there that um, I think uh, is very interesting as well. In Japan, you know, for all their, their issues, uh, companies are getting religion on corporate governance, and you're seeing more activist-type situations. You're seeing stock buybacks. You're seeing higher returns on equity. Uh, so to me, Asia is, is a more attractive place over the next five to ten years. And, and looking big picture, you know, the U.S. economy is about 20% of global GDP, but the market cap of our stock market is north of 50. It, it's the widest ratio we've ever seen. And uh, I do think we're going to get some reversion to the mean, but instead of you know, Europe benefiting, uh, I think it'll be Asia that will, will, will take back some of that so-called market share in terms yeah, of market cap. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I think a lot of the global mandates you see, big overweights to the U.S. have been rewarded. Everybody has a home country bias, and, and so the U.S. has done well. Um, but uh, any, any global managers have, have definitely struggled. So it, it's interesting on, on that big picture view. Jim, we got a few minutes left in our, our, our show here. As, as you think about, you know, wh where are you, you're focused, uh, any, any sort of closing thoughts on, on market dynamics? Yeah, um I think the one thing that I've been focused on lately has been the manufacturing recession that we've seen worldwide. If you look at a lot of the numbers, whether it's the purchasing managers indexes in the major countries or even in the emerging countries, that there's no doubt that there is a glut um, with manufacturing and it has been suffering. And that is also showing up in some of the commodity prices as well, too, like copper prices are down uh, as well. And Outside of the U.S., that is a much bigger deal because we're not as a manufacturing base as they are in Europe or as they are in Asia. And unfortunately, I'm not seeing any signs that that story is uh, playing itself out just yet. So I think that what we're going to need to see some kind of a global rebound where it would be, at, you know, that you'd want to start to think about them going better is some kind of a manufacturing rebound, and it's still too early yet, for me at least, to say that I'm, I'm starting to see the signs of it. And uh, where can people, if people want to stay in touch with all the stuff that, that you're doing, um, both at, both Jim and Peter, maybe give us um, you know, a little bit where they can find you. I'll start. Um, you can find me. The best way to find me would be on Twitter at, at Bianco Research or LinkedIn under Jim Bianco or our website, BiancoResearch.com. And, and, Peter. and uh, my, my Twitter handle is pbookvar, and if you want to reach out, you can uh, email me at peter.bookvar.bleakleyadvisory or go to uh, bookreport.com, and that's B-O-O-C-K report.com, and see my daily writings. This is great. Um, I thank you both for some great commentary uh, around the world. We talked Fed, we talked ECB, global, gold, uh, really around the world, all asset classes. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate you both spending the hour with us. Thanks, Jeremy. Thank Thanks, Jim. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.